friends, and welcome to But I Digest. My name is Hans Rufert. My name is Steve McDonough. Welcome to our crazy podcast, where every week we celebrate the food in our lives, the history, the heroes, and all of its glorious hoopla. Each week, we try to feature a specific food and then meander through its backstory, digging up the choicest facts and then steaming those facts with a little bit of garlic, some white wine until they magically <laughs> pop open. And then we can enjoy those facts with some crusty bread. And we're always <laughs> happy to have you along on this journey. And if you haven't guessed it already, our topic today is clams. I love what you just did there. <laughs> well, I'm already hungry, though. I kind of feel like uh, we should uh, we should do the episodes with a little side dish of what we're cooking, but uh, what we're talking we, about. We can't do it now. We'll do it in a mignonette. Oh, mm. nice. The puns are early. We're out the gate right? with the puns. God, I said it right, didn't I? Mignonette? Min- I, uh, you know, we, we were signed up to be on the American uh, uh, Pun Olympics this year, but I think it's been curtailed because of uh, COVID concerns. But uh, maybe next, maybe in four years, we'll be on the gold uh, gold medal team, Olympic uh, pun team. <laughs> I'm just trying to be timeless. Uh, so... Uh, let's talk about clams. I mean, it, it is one of my favorite foods, and I have always been a bit of a fish nerd. I had, um, I've got a horrible story about uh, swallowing a dead clam. We could talk about if we if we need to. Uh, I guess you're all you're always swallowing them dead, but I swallowed a dead rotten clam that had died in my aquarium uh, as I was trying to siphon siphon it out of the aquarium. The phone rang as I was starting the siphon. I don't know if you've ever done that in an aquarium where you like suck on one end of the tube to no, start a siphon. No. No, none of us have ever done that. Well, none of I, us have ever <laughs> taken a tube to an aquarium and to suck up. No, you are the only <laughs> one. No, I promise I'm not the only one. That is how you start a siphon in an aquarium. Well, I had a, a pet clam that died and it didn't just die. It died and turned to mush. And I thought, OK, rather than trying to scoop it out with a net, I'm just going to get a siphon started and then move that siphon over to the clam. And it would just go up the tube, out and into the bucket. Problem solved. Well, we lived above our family restaurant, and we were always having to be mindful of if the phone rang. So right as I was starting the siphon, the phone rang, and I kind of turned my head as I was starting the siphon. And the business end of the siphon, which was away from the clam, moved towards the clam. And in an instant, I sucked it up, swallowed it. And That's it, the it, most yeah. horrible story I've ever heard. So the best part was my parents had gone out to eat. So I was by myself. We were it was a night we were closed at the restaurant. So I had written a note to my mother <laughs> in my like 10 year old handwriting that said, swallowed a dead clam. I think I might die. Please check on me. She's she still to this day has that note where I put swallowed a dead clam. I think I might die. Um, so. <laughs> I'm already taking us off on crazy road. Oh, but we can end. This is the best podcast oh, yeah. we've best ever done. We're done. We're done. So I've eaten every style of clam from delicious <laughs> to putrid, uh, but we're not going to talk beyond that. That was the end of the putrid clam recipes. I don't recommend that at all. Uh, so um, aquarium tragedies behind me. I do love a good clam despite that, which is really a testament how good clams are, that I can get beyond that uh, and enjoy a good clam. Uh, but let's always uh, define our terms. So a clam really refers to a bivalve. If you ever took uh, a sort of high school uh, biology, you talk about bivalves, which are mollusks, which include things like snails and even uh, octopi and cephalopods are all mollusks. Uh, but it specifically talks about the two shells, right? So a bivalve has two shells, which could include things like oysters and, and mussels. Uh, but we're specifically talking about clams. And there are over 15,000 living current species of bivalves about which 500 of which live in freshwater. So, uh, but most of the ones that we eat 
uh, in the culinary world are all saltwater clams. So the ones we think of usually are the quahog, which that word always threw me off because it looks like quahog, yeah. but it's pronounced quahog. Um, do, you, do you look like you're about to say something there? Do you... Just that then if you use the Q-U-A word, you would, would then expect that to be co. You said quahog, right? Yeah, quahog. You would expect Q-U-A-Y to be co, but it's actually key. So it changes yeah, yeah. its... No. pronunciation again yeah english makes no sense but i think this bear this uh, kind of leans heavily on some of the native uh, languages um but those are the ones we think of like cherry stone little neck hard shell those are kind of the ubiquitous clam like if you're thinking clam typically it is the quahog clam but there's also a soft shell variety and soft shell is sort of relative it's about the shells are about the thickness of our fingernails as far as uh, you know, they're not rock hard like the the cherry stone little neck, but they're soft shell. Uh, and those are sometimes called steamer clams. And that's kind of what you usually see in soups and chowders, right? So those are kind of the more utility clams that you would find canned. Uh, they're not, I would say, grade A, but they're still perfectly fine and, and delicious. Uh, and then the other kind of common culinary clams, another weird spelling, it looks like geoduck, but it's actually pronounced gooey duck, uh, which doesn't sound appetizing, gooey duck. Uh, but that word comes from a Nisqually phrase for dig deep. So it's a native tribe, the Nisqually, um, and that meant to dig deep. And these things are massive. Have you ever seen those, the gooey ducks? No, I once accidentally uh, siphoned up a gooey duck. <laughs> I left a note from my mother. I've siphoned up a dead gooey duck. I may die. Yeah, it, it would be a massive siphon because these things can get up to eight pounds. They are giant. Uh, and they're really popular in Asian cuisine. And I've seen them actually in, a, in an Asian market. You know how most bivalves, they live inside the shell, right? You don't really see the animal unless you just happen to catch them with their little tongue or their little siphon sticking out. But usually they're inside of their shell. With gooey duck, it looks like they're wearing their shell like a kind of a fashion accessory, almost like a funny little hat. So the animal is probably 80% exposed and then uh, 20% is kind of covered with this, not even covered. It's almost, again, right. it looks like an afterthought, huh. uh, but, but they're giant and you can eat that entire muscle, but you have to chop them up because uh, they are just giant, um, very meaty clam, very popular and right now very expensive too. Uh, it is one of the freakiest looking creatures that I think is on any menu, but we humans are always really good at finding some delicious way to prepare crazy freaky looking fruits, vegetables, animals, minerals. Uh, so nothing's going to stop us from finding out something's food value. But uh, So those are our three main clams when we're talking about clams. Now, as an animal, clams are filter feeders. So they um, a lot of people don't like to think about what they do for a living. It's kind of like the yeah. uh, dirty jobs, Mike Rowe. Uh, but they basically sit in mud or sand and they're just filtering stuff out of the water constantly. So they're they're eating constantly also because they have these tiny little cilia, little little hairs in them that are catching little phytoplankton and basically anything edible out of the water they're catching and converting that into food. And then they're kind of then spitting out clean water. So they're like little perfect filters in the water. Um, and but the other thing they do is to build those shells, they're actually removing carbon from the surrounding water. So they they trap the calcium carbonate from the water, and that's what they use to kind of layer upon layer build those hard shells. Uh, so clams technically were carbon neutral way before Al Gore. I mean, like way before <laughs> carbon neutral was even a thing. Clams were like, no, we got this. We got your carbon locked up right here. So very trendy, very on point. Those uh, those clams. Um, isn't that cool? <laughs> I, it, it is cool. Um, it is, that's very on blue point. 
Nice. Well, those are oysters. The same same concept. They do the same thing. They're they're catching that carbon and they're locking it away in their in their cool little houses. Uh, and but that carbon stays trapped in there well beyond the clams' lifespan. So you'll find clams and fossil record dating back eons, and that still is trapped carbon in there. So I think that's again nerdy cool stuff that I that it I, is. Yeah, I love that stuff. So the uh, there's evidence that clams have been eaten back really pre-civilization. I mean, we've we've always been hunter-gatherers and clams have been a part of human existence really uh, as far as we can find you know, evidence of our existence. But what I think is really cool in North America, up in British Columbia, uh, there's evidence that about 5,500 years ago, the First Nations and the Pacific Northwest people, they were making clam gardens. So they're actually sort of the, the, the forefathers of aquaculture. And these were underwater features. They were kind of like these walled off gardens that had terraces that helped keep out larger predators like fish and crabs. And they provided this sort of perfect sanctuary for the clams to just kind of sit there and get uh, fat and happy as a clam. Um, which About I don't know. 5,500 5, years ago. Well, it might have been 5,350. You know, I'm just rounding yeah. up. I mean, yeah, that but just I mean, makes sense, though. It makes sense that that's it's not dangerous. You're not like hunting a buffalo. You're giving a clam a home yeah, a little and, clam garden that's that's makes sense to me well what's wild is in when i'm the research i was reading about that is they're starting to do that again so some of those native people are trying to reclaim uh that kind of to ancestral reclam, to reclam. <laughs> god did i miss that um but i think that's cool they're they're going back and kind of uh and you know owning that and are are kind of getting back into that aquaculture so i think that's great and it's also such a great thing for the environment because little to no equi equipment that's involved like specialty equipment you just need these um you need clean water and the clams help to clean the water um so it's just a kind of a hand in hand it's a great uh, it's a great endeavor so and delicious on top of that so but again we've seen clams kind of in the human record as far back as we can go. And there's even one kind of uh, controversial evolutionary theory that kind of caught my eye going all the way back to, I don't know if you remember, Leonard Nimoy had a, had a great crazy show called In Search Of. And it was oh, yeah, kind of- yeah, yeah, on PBS. Yeah, yeah. And it, but it was these weird, like he would just kind of put the, the seeds of these crazy conspiracy theories. But a lot of those things actually, I don't want to say conspiracy, but they were, they were theories at the time that science hadn't quite backed up. But a lot of those things that appeared as, you know, big question marks on that show back in the 70s and 80s have have since been proven correct. Well, the one that stuck in my mind was this sort of uh, coastal human theory and with the missing link. So there's, you know, we're always talking about there's kind of a couple gaps in the human evolutionary fossil record. And one of the theories is because our ancestors, our specifically ours, the, you know, Homo sapien, lived along the coast where fossils have a hard time setting because you have the constant in and out of the of the waves kind of washing away any potential fossils. Um, but the shape of our nose, which is that sort of downward cone shaped um, nose, um, many people believe is because of our ancestors were not only hunter gatherers, they were aquatic hunter gatherers. And if you look at any other primates, their noses are usually flat. And if they go underwater, water rushes straight into their sinus cavity and goes into their lungs. But with humans, when we go underwater, the shape of our nose actually traps a little bubble of air and allows us to forage underwater without drowning. So I think that is pretty fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and again, could be uh, could be signs that 
our ancestors spent a lot of time in those sort of estuarial tidal areas where they were hunting and gathering things like clams and mussels and shrimp and crabs, uh, which could explain when you have like one of those, I cannot shake this craving for clams feelings. Uh, it could be that your ancestral DNA is just kind of raising its hand and saying, hey, I need some, uh, some good old coastal comfort food. Um, so I love that theory. I'm oh. going to stick with that one. Okay, I like it. Uh, but in the in those same, if you look up and down, say our seaboard, up the eastern seaboard, um, all of the native folks in in North America, clams seem to be a part of their culture as well. Whether they were aquaculturing them or just harvesting them in those tidal areas, and the term clam uh, in our kind of current vernacular can refer to money because they were not only eating the the flesh of the clam, they were then trading the shells as currency. Yeah, and, that's uh, 45 clams, see? That's 45 clams. And uh, yeah. today, you know, they a clam is equal to $1, right? Um, that's sort of the, but typically back then, they were trading whole strings of clams. Uh, so it would be like a necklace. In fact, you know, oftentimes they were turned into jewelry, uh, the, the shells. But um, typically they would trade a whole string of clams for whatever it was they were bartering for. And the more inland you went, the higher the value of the clam. So if you're trying to trade clams with your neighbor in the marsh next door, they don't want your clams. They got plenty of clams on their own. But as you go inland away from the coast, the indigenous people and in, you know in that area, that's a, a rare commodity. So I think that's kind of cool is that it's sort of a fluctuating value of who you traded what with. And the farther away you got from the coast, the higher the clams were worth. So 45 clams in coastal currency might be like 90 clams in like, uh, you know, Midland out west kind of somewhere. So I think that's kind of neat. Huh. Uh, but the one for one clam equation, I don't think holds up anymore because I had some uh, some raw clams in Atlanta here a while back and they're a bit more than a buck for a clam. Uh, so I think that whole system is a bit, uh, a bit you know, shot. Antiquated. Yeah. So I, uh, I have been lucky enough to eat clams really all over the world. I've had them in Norway. Um, I've eaten them on the beach in Norway, the kind of way you th think of like a clam dig where we're cooking them right there on the, on the rocks. This I've was had a in... real nice clam bake, like oh, that, no. right? Like a clam bake? I mean, I like the tune. Look at them is... clams, been digging them since sunup. Is that a, was... is that is that a song? Is it a song? You don't know it's a song? No. You don't, you, it's, I mean, it's it sounds like most... a song. Are you just riffing then off the top of your head? Then at last come the clams. Here they come, because it's time for Natalie Drumroll. Oh, nice. Dump the straight guy. Oh, come on. You don't uh, know this? I don't. Then at last come the clams, steamed under rockweed and popping from their shells. Just how many of them galloped down our gullets, we couldn't say ourselves. This, this is like, how did you not know I was going to do this song? I, I, I have, I've never so heard that song. On point. It is so on point. This is... It is from one of the most famous Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. It is a classic of Broadway uh, of history. In fact, Time magazine um, called it the uh, the best musical of the 20th century. Wow. Um, and the song goes, uh, this was a real nice clam bake. We're mighty glad we came. The vittles we ate were good. You bet the company was the same. And you don't know it. It's Rodgers and <laughs> no Hammerstein idea. and everyone knows it. It's uh, in this musical. There is a carnival barker named Billy Bigelow. And uh, he is, that was a hint. And he falls in love with a, um, a factory worker named uh, uh, Julie Jordan. And the songs are If I Loved You. June is busting out all over. You'll never walk alone. Um, in fact, the original Billy Bigelow on Broadway 
I'm going to give you a chance to win half a point, was John Raitt. Who is John Raitt's famous daughter? I, you have me so lost. I don't even know if we're on the same continent, right? Now. <laughs> I have no idea. Like, I don't catch any of these references. The Not 1945, one. John Raitt. Okay. He was the original Billy Bigelow on Broadway. He has okay. a very famous singing daughter. Who would that be? Come on, you can get half a point for this. Oh, uh, oh, oh, Bonnie Raitt. I saw there her in you concert. go. Half, I, half yeah, a yeah, point yeah. for Gryffindor. Yeah, yeah, okay. There yeah. you go. Yep, got it. Okay, so you don't know this one. I don't know this one. I, I have a, an inkling of an idea, but it would literally be me throwing a dart at a dartboard with my eyes closed. Please, please say, please say Matilda. Uh, well, no, but uh, the only other Rodgers and Hammerstein that I think I know is The Sound of Music, but that's not my guess, right? Is that the right group, Rodgers no, and Hammerstein? No, yeah. Yes. Okay, good. Yes, but so it's, but it's not, that's not my guess. Um, I, I only know of this musical through a reference through a song. Is it Carousel? Hans Rupert for the win! Oh my God! Oh, Natalie, we need some like bells and whistles here. <laughs> Very I, nice. How did you not know I was going to do clam bake? This was everybody I, I, else. As soon as you said clams, they're all like, "Oh, geez, Steve's going to pull out clam bake." <laughs> no, I listen. There's a song by the Beautiful South, and he just mentioned something about Carousel and somebody named Billy. And that's the only uh, thing you took sticking my in my hints, head. Grasshopper. Yeah. And you well said done. carnival too. You said yeah, carnival. Yeah, I know I was kind to so, you. But I have never heard the music. I've never seen the musical. Um, so and I, I feel like I need to now because. Good uh, job. Good yeah. job. Uh, I will also say last week's, if you were listening, uh, the, the quiz was um, this Netflix musical that was just everybody was watching during the pandemic that was on Broadway recently starring uh, Nicole Kidman playing Angie Dickinson, and she sang Give It Some Zazz, along with James Corden and uh, Meryl Streep. And the show, I told you, was about them trying to help this uh, lesbian find a date for The Prom, and the title is The Prom. I gave it to you on a song. Yeah, you did. I mean, it was right there. It was that low-hanging fruit, which we talk about low-hanging fruit every episode, uh, but I was too, uh, too shy to reach up and grab it. All right, so that's it. Good job. Let's get back to them clams. Well, my my final point was having eaten them all over the world in Germany, in Florida, in Seattle, in New York. My favorite clams were in Atlanta, Georgia, not because they were from Atlanta. Lord, I can't imagine what kind of clams we would grow <laughs> in Atlanta, Georgia. But I was sitting with my son, Finn, at a raw bar in Midtown Atlanta and just further proof that sometimes it's not what's on the plate, it's who's sitting beside you or across the table or the stories you tell. Um, so I love a good clam, but uh, good company is, is equally as important, I think. So. Good clam story, good real, that was a real nice clam pick. Well, I'm thank glad you. I came. So when I think of clams, <clears throat> I don't think of raw clams. I come from New Jersey, so I think of the Jersey Shore and a wicker basket of fried clams you know, the, the fried clam strips and uh, a cold beer. But I also have memories of going to the Howard Johnson's when my mom was feeling flush and she could afford to bring us out <laughs> to, uh, to dinner. We'd go to Howard Johnson's and get their clam strips. So the, uh, the Howard Johnson's, the look of those, uh, they're no longer around. The last one closed, sadly, in 2017. But the look was really iconic. Had you ever been to a Howard Johnson's? I had. There was one on our way to Florida, somewhere like Dothan, Alabama. And the building is still there. And it is so iconic to see mm -hmm. that building. It's, it's empty, but 
that was always our place to stop and get an ice cream or even a yeah. coffee um, or a meal if, if, if the time allowed. So, yeah, I have good well, memories. The look, they started off looking very kind of New England colonial with uh, dormered orange tiles and these turquoise blue shutters. And they always had a cupola uh, or cupola. Cup, how, how do you say that? I don't cupola? even know. Other than cupola. Francis, other than Francis Ford, I don't know too many cupolas. They, they had one of those cupola cupolas on the top with a uh, weather vane of Simple Simon and the Pie Men. Uh, and for those of you who don't know it, it's an old nursery rhyme, Simple Simon, met a pie man going to the fair. By the time I would go as a kid, they, were, they had changed. They were very modern, very contemporary and sleek with big plate glass windows and formica counters and orange stools. They had these very sharply sloping orange tile roofs. By the 1960s and 70s, it was impossible to travel any distance without finding one of these bright orange roofs and that Simple Simon weather vane, or in my case, the one we used to go to in Jersey, had a neon sign. Wow. So it was a neon sign of the logo of Simple Simon and the Pie Man and Simon's dog. And it's all in um, profile. So the Pie Man has a pie and he's kind of leaning down, looking at Simon, who's looking up at him, pointing at the pie, and the dog is sitting between them, looking up at the pie. And in this case, the neon sign moved. So Simon pointed at the pie, down at the dog. Pie, dog, wow. pie dog and the dog's tail went up down up nice. down and it was magic to me as a kid it was just magic i loved it so when you would go in there was kids menus and you would love this they had a frankfurt uh spelled like the city not with the u frankfurt and that was their all beef frankfurters they were notched lengthwise and they would grill them in butter wow. and then they put them in a butter toasted roll and serve it up in a paper sleeve um, now, on these kids' menus, at the bottom, it said, for your convenience, strained baby food for a quarter. They sold, nice. they had, isn't that amazing, though, that they sold strained baby food? And you could, it said, join our birthday club, ask your waitress for a registration. So I just remember so clearly, you know, asking the waitress and she'd bring you over a little piece of paper and you'd put your, you know, a card and you'd put your name and your address on it and get set for the birthday club of, at Hojo's. But the coolest thing about these menus is they were flat, kind of duck-billed looking. They were round with kind of a duck bill. So like a flat hat, right? Mm -hmm. Because they actually became a hat. The menus themselves were die cut from the, um, there was kind of a rim. And from the rim to the center, they were die cut. So as you picked it up, you'd pull it down over your head and you'd have this baseball cap from the menu. It was the coolest. That's and so awesome. I always got, yeah, it was. I always got the Tommy Tucker which was sliced turkey and mashed potatoes and gravy. And it came with ice cream, came with your drink. But the thing about that Howard Johnson's is it was the site of my very first favorite meal that I ever remember. Um, I ordered off the adult menu and I ordered chicken cacciatore. And my mother's like, you're ordering what? I was like nine. And I ordered the chicken cacciatore and it was so delicious. And it was my first favorite dining experience. Now, so at nine years old, did you know how to pronounce cacciatore? No. Yes, I was super fancy. Well, I thought you I was Italian like, when I was little. I grew out of it. It's you know, not knowing how to pronounce that. It's a mouthful. Love the chicken cockatoos. <laughs> now, for the adults, I remember the one in Times Square. At one point, there were three Howard Johnsons in Times Square alone. And they had this big sign in the window that said, free hors d'oeuvres from four o'clock till nine o'clock. Wow. And they would do decanters of Manhattan's and martinis and daiquiris. So they would give you the Manhattan full glass of it and a little side decanter for all your refills. 
That's awesome. It was crazy. All right. So where did all this come from? In 1925, Howard Johnson, he had borrowed two, $2,000 to open a small uh, corner pharmacy in Quincy, Massachusetts. And he paid it back really quickly. And he realized it was because he was making so much money with the soda fountain in the drugstore. So he thought I should do more of this and less of the, you know, selling the, the pharmaceutical products. And he started selling ice cream. Now his ice cream was different than most people's because in order to be ice cream, it needs to legally be a certain amount of butterfat. Howard Johnson's ice cream was twice the amount of butterfat. Wow. And it was delicious. And he had 28 flavors. He thought he had every flavor in the world. Sorry, Baskin Robbins. And so he took that ice cream, he started doing concession stands along the Massachusetts coast. And they were so successful, he was able to uh, open a brick and mortar restaurant, which was the first Howard Johnson's. So he opened this brick and mortar restaurant in Quincy. Now, one of the reasons it really took off so well has a Broadway backstory. Oh, no. Yes, it does. (laughs) So Eugene O'Neill, who's a very famous Irish American playwright, he had an experimental new play called Strange Interlude, which actually won the Pulitzer Prize. Now, the mayor of Boston banned the production. It was, it was too out there. So the theater guild said, all right, that's fine. We'll move half an hour away. We'll just go to Quincy. So now this play is five hours long. It's got a dinner break in it. Wow. So all of these influential Bostoners are going up to see this play in Quincy. During the dinner break, they're all eating at Howard Johnson's. He takes off. So here's the timeline. In 1929, the stock market crashed. So he couldn't open a second one. He had to wait until 1932 to open a second. Now, when he did open a second, he franchised it. It wasn't company owned. So Howard Johnson's is one of America's first franchises. Nice. In 1939, he had 200 restaurants at this point and World War II hits. The, so German, 19... the, yeah, the Germans have a way of messing things up like that. I'm right? sorry. Poor, but, yeah. poor Howard Johnson. Damn Germans. 200 restaurants, World War II hits. He ends up down in, by the mid-40s to 12 restaurants. And then in the 40s and 50s, they build the turnpikes. And this is what you were talking about. The Pennsylvania Turnpike, the Ohio Turnpike, Jersey Turnpike, Connecticut Turnpike. He bids and wins exclusive rights to be the restaurant at all of those service station turnoffs on wow. all of the turnpike systems. So by 1954, he's got 400 restaurants in 32 states, 10% are company owned, that's it. He only owns 10% and they're the turnpike ones. And so by the 1960s, it's the largest restaurant chain in the country with more than a thousand spots in the US and Canada. So what does he do now to like keep it growing? He brings in, and this is my favorite part, Pierre Frenet and Jacques Pepin. Wow, the Jacques Pepin? The Jacques Pepin. Now, for those of you who don't know, but I'm sure most of you do, he was uh, born outside of Lyon. He was known for demystifying French cooking, had a show with Julia Child, won an Emmy, 24 Beard Awards, the Legion of Honor in France, uh, cookbook author, all all of those things. But he was also um, Charles de Gaulle, the French president. He was his personal chef at one point. So um, Jacques Pepin is in New York City. He's working at uh, Le Pavillon. It's a New York City restaurant from the 40s to 60s. That is French food in America. It is like a temple of French haute cuisine. And Pierre Frenet is the chef. The Kennedys would eat there. So Jackie Kennedy offers Jacques Pepin the position of White House chef. And he turns it down because, and this is my favorite, he's like, I I don't see the potential. (laughs) Because there was no TV. Guests didn't call the chefs into the dining room. This is what Pepin said. And cooking was the bottom of the social scale. Oh. 
he had already been cooking for de Gaulle. So he's like, so what's the difference to cook for the Kennedys? I've already done this. He doesn't see how it's going to be any different. He wants to focus on Americans looking for gentleness and simplicity, which I just love. That is nice. So Papin sees that Frenet and the staff, they're being underpaid, they're being mistreated. So he organizes a protest at, uh, at Le Pavillon, and he gets threatened by the mob. Wow. So meanwhile, Howard Johnson's is also a regular at Le Pavillon, and he offers jobs to Pepin and Frenet, and he steals them away. And a lot of the staff left in the restaurant never really recovered. Now, Pepin becomes the director of research and development there for like, yeah, for almost a decade. And he's learning about mass production and marketing, and he's working in the, uh, he's, he's running the commissary. Now, one of Howard Johnson's contributions to the restaurant industry is this idea of a large commissary system. So, you know, he's got hundreds of restaurants. He, at the commissary, they're preparing the menu items and flash freezing them in order to distribute kind of a uniformly consistent product to the restaurants. In fact, Howard Johnson's at one time was the largest commercial food supplier in the, in the United States. Wow. The only entity that served more meals outside of an American's home was the U.S. Army. That's impressive. It is. So Pepin, uh, figures he has to learn the real ropes of the restaurant. So he, he started off as a line cook in Queens, New York, at the busiest Howard Johnson's, flipping burgers and then moving to the commissary. So there he creates the iconic American food from Howard Johnson's, the fried clam strips. So the strips are made by separating the clam feet. Some people call them tongues. I think you might have even called it a tongue before, but it's actually the foot, the part that sticks out. Mm -hmm. That's how the clam moves around. You separate the clam feet from the bellies, and you do that before you fry them, you cut them into strips, and, uh, and then fry them, because when they are cooked without their bellies, they get sweeter. So I, there's, listen, there's a tie-in. I have no belly, so I must be much sweeter than I was um, <laughs> 15 years ago. Yes, that's so, true. Good to know. So they're trademarked as tender sweet clams. You are the tender sweet chef. <laughs> Got to trademark that. So I also think that one of the secrets is that they're dipped in evaporated milk and whole milk and uh, possibly a little vanilla. Do you know about that? No. We, I used to work at a restaurant here in Chicago that makes the greatest fried calamari. And it's super, uh, super tender, never rubbery. And it's because he, uh, he marinates them in milk. I, I think the evaporated milk was a great idea, though, because usually when you're frying, sometimes the water content is what can mess up your fry. But if you're having evaporated milk where it's less water content, that's kind of a brilliant idea. I'll have to try that. I know, right? Then he perfected, uh, Papin perfected the idea of the clam chowder by using all of the bellies. And the chowder he's making in 3,000 gallon quantities. Wow. He'd, he'd make 3,000 pounds of veal bones to use for stock, fresh stock. He'd debone 1,000 turkeys every day. Uh, he introduced beef bourguignon, scallops and mushroom sauce in 1,000 gallon pots, sending it out frozen and boil in bags. And there's no shortcuts here. Wow. So look at the food being served in a Howard Johnson's fresh veal stock. Yeah, right. That's there's insane. no shortcuts here. He brings in Swiss pastry chef Al uh, Albert Kuhn. I'm not sure if I'm saying his last name right. Um, Kuhn set up the department that makes thousands of pies and 10 tons of Danish a day. Wow. So Kuhn goes on to become the pastry chef of the Carter White House, too. And he told uh, the New York Post in 79, you know, I just love a good quote. He says, uh, I am very fussy about the difference between good, very good, and delicious. 
I love that. I, that Isn't was, that great? That my dad would say the same thing. If somebody said, oh, it was good. He goes, I'm not I'm not aiming for good. Good means I've missed the mark, um, which makes him sound like he uh, could never be you know, satisfied. But we're, when you go out to eat, you're looking for better than good. I like right. that. Good, very good and delicious. So um, Howard Johnson's son, Bud, took over around the early 70s and he slashed the budget. Hans, you're a restaurant person. What yep. is the restaurant foods, food cost supposed to be at? Well, below 30, ideally, but 30 is kind of the magic number. They were running at 48%. Wow. And I mean, now now you think about the things that I said about yeah. the clams and the, the veal stock yeah. and all of that, yeah. 48%. So as the budgets fall, it degrades the quality of the food and the franchisees are bound to purchase this product from a supply chain that's deteriorating. And the business is also based on road travel clientele and people are now flying. Mm. Just a, speaking of a recipe, not a good recipe. So by the 1980s, it's just sad and tired. And there was this Times Square flagship restaurant, the last one in Times Square. And it was like a time capsule in the middle of Times Square. And I would never go in there. It was just sad. And so by the time that they closed, you know, the clam strips were coming from a general distributor. And now that Times Square store is the flagship American Eagle store. Gotcha. It's the, a bummer. Yeah, that is that is sad. And it, I have such fond memories of Hojo. And I kind of kind of felt like I was getting away with something because my dad's sort of nickname was Joe. And Ho is also a nickname. So anytime <laughs> I could say Hojo, um, I felt like I was getting away with something that he didn't he didn't quite catch that. But uh, but anyway, no, on a larger level, I thought Hojo was kind of a fun stomp. Yeah. And let me, let me give you a little quiz. You love a quiz. Uh, now, above the American Eagle now, what is above the American Eagle in Times Square? Is it A, a 25-story wall of LED screens displaying brightly colored ads, or B, a seedy little strip club? I would love for it to be a 25-story wall of LED screens displaying the contents of the seedy little strip club <laughs> in Times Square. Uh, and the dancer's name would be Fried Clam Strip. That's a, that's a certain dance they do. It's the Fried Clam Strip. Uh, let's, let's go with the seedy little strip club. Wrong. It is oh. now 25-story wall of LED lines, uh, light uh, screens. I'm sure ads. I have seen that. Yeah, it's, uh, that's sad. Well, the seedy little strip club was above the Howard Johnsons. Oh. I may or may not have totally gone in there at some point in the 80s. <laughs> it was it was not not a nice place, <laughs> but that was in the 80s. All right, so that's that's my Howard Johnson's history, and I have a, a soft spot in my in my heart for all of it. Well, and we've just given uh, strippers nationwide the idea of now doing the fried clam strip uh, <laughs> as a verb <laughs> instead of as a as a menu item. Uh, I love it. Let's move on to our recipes. The only thing that's hotter than the oven is watching you cook. All right. So I have cheated a little bit this week. I, let's say not cheating. I My favorite preparation for clams is to eat them raw. Uh, and that's not a recipe. I just love them straight out. Maybe a little lemon juice. That's fantastic. But... I had an opportunity about a decade ago to go to a clam farm uh, down near Sapelo Island, close to Darien, Georgia. And I was doing a show for Georgia Public Broadcasting that was called Hans Cooks the South. 
um, which seemed like a funny title to them that this guy named Hans would be cooking Southern food. But really, it was kind of a more exploration of the foods that we grow in Georgia. So we did um, peaches, of course. We did Georgia shrimp. And on one of those excursions, we met this guy named Captain Charlie Phillips. And it seems like the Phillips name is sort of ubiquitous with seafood, but he's no relation to Phillips Seafood Company. Um, but he runs Sapelo Sea Farms, and he started clam farming in Georgia when he learned that those waters that run by Sapelo Island are actually cleaner than Alaskan seawater. So it's some of the cleanest water uh, in the entire continental United States. So um, he saw the opportunity. There were native clams already here in Georgia, but he saw the opportunity to, to kind of uh, branch out and make that a clam farm. So when we shot the show, I got to go out on an airboat and we went through the estuaries and the marshes and uh, Captain Charlie at one point just hopped over the side of the boat and was about waist deep in dark brown muck, just randomly blindly feeling around for clams. I cannot imagine what kind of things would bite back on that, but he pulled up these gorgeous wild clams. Uh, so I just thought, you know, I'm going to reach out to Captain Charlie and ask him, what's your favorite way, a professional clam uh, farmer? Wait, how do you eat clams? And he wrote back, he said, Hans, at home, I use a heavy skillet with a lid. I saute a little garlic and sometimes add cilantro in butter or olive oil. I get the pan very hot. I add the clams with a quarter cup of white wine. I steam them covered until they start to pop open, and I pull them out just at that moment, as soon as they start to open. He said, the residual juice is great for dipping crusty bread in, but I leave the last little bit in the pan because sometimes the clams have grit in them. And he said, if you live by the ocean, you can actually purge the clams in salt water for yeah. about 30 minutes prior to cooking right. to kind of help them spit out whatever sand right. is in there. Um, and I, uh, I have had clams with Captain Charlie on a dock in a little town called Towns in Georgia, where we did exactly this. We didn't have the cilantro, but it was just garlic, butter, white wine, clams. Uh, and it is just pure perfection. I, you cannot get better uh, than that when, when nature already gives it to you, already individually wrapped. Um, and those that wrapping, apparently, you can trade for goods and services inland. Uh, but I think that is uh, clam perfection. From Captain Charlie Phillips. That's right pulling up the clams and they're just opening up and saying, I am the captain now. <laughs> it's a mutiny. Yes. You don't know what that is either, do you? Oh, I just thought you was you being funny. I mean, you're always funny, but no, no it's a it's reference. It's the Tom Hanks movie. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen that. I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, I am the captain now. Yeah, no. Oh, for God's sake, is no? it Castaway? No. I haven't seen that either. It's, uh, it's called Captain Phillips. Oh, that's the name of the movie. Yes. Oh, and, yeah. and, and, I am the captain now. Every other person, what do we, how many listeners do we have? Our three listeners were all like, oh, Hans, it's Captain I Phillips. I'm the captain now. In fact, they probably all said it when you first said his name was Captain Phillips. They didn't wait like I was and be polite. Yeah, all I right. Know. So let me talk about my drink. I figured I would do a Bloody Caesar. Now, a Bloody Mary, vodka and tomato juice spices, a Bloody Bull, vodka and tomato juice with beef broth and spices, wow. a bloody Caesar, vodka, tomato juice, clam broth. When we did a hearty restaurant, we would do a, um, a Bloody Mary flight or a bloody flight. And we would do all three of those, which are really kind of fun because Americans are freaked out by the idea of the bloody Caesar and drinking the clam broth. But that's because we're Americans. And in Canada, uh, it's the national drink. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, they even have a national Caesar day. Many people lay claim to the origins in Manhattan in 1953. There was uh, something called the Smirnoff Smiler, which was Smirnoff in the clam juice, which I totally believe because that's how the Moscow Mule got started, trying to sell some Smirnoff in the same way. 
uh, Charles Adams, you know, the cartoonist from the Adams family. Oh yeah. I love him. He said he invented it, but called it a gravel Gertie in 1959. And in the 1960s, uh, there was a drink marketed with Clamato, which is a Mott's um, tomato juice clam broth uh, mix. And that was called a clam digger. But in 1969, there was uh, the Calgary Inn in, in Canada. Uh, they were trying to make a cocktail that spoke to their new Italian restaurant. And the chef was looking and thinking, you know, he's making a, um, a pasta dish. It was a red sauce dish with clams. And so he wanted to kind of mimic that into a drink. So he mashed clams to produce what he called a clam nectar, which I call a nightmare. <laughs> Can you imagine? He's mashing clams and then pulling out the mashed. What a horrible job. I siphoned that from my aquarium when I was 10 years yeah. old. <laughs> he's mashing clams. I've mashed clams. I call it nectar. No, I call that a crime is what yeah. I call that. So he, the clam nectar, um, vodka, tomato juice, clam nectar, Worcestershire, celery sauce, uh, celery salt, excuse me. And uh, he said a secret ingredient. He didn't tell people for about 25 years. He finally said a secret ingredient was oregano which makes oh, a lot of sense. I bet yeah. that's perfect in there. And that was called a bloody Caesar. Um, also this, so the Clamato is already made. You, it's an easy way to make a, uh, a a bloody Caesar. I recommend it. They're very bracing. You uh, squeeze a lemon into it, in my opinion. And it's a, I, I got all the people that would try it at Hardy Restaurant thought it was really delicious. Maybe not their first option for Bloody Mary drink, but it's something that everybody was glad that they tried and thought it was tasty. I'm going to put that on the website as well. And it's a pretty simple one that I think that uh, people should try out. It sounds delicious. I uh, Have you ever had Lovage, the herb Lovage? Uh, yes. Yeah, I think a little Lovage in that would sound lovely uh, for that kind of kick of celery. I mean, that whole thing to me sounds, I'm, I'm salivating. That sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. So if you would like to see these recipes, please go to our website, which is butidigestpodcast.com. Also there, hopefully by now, because uh, we are updating the website as we speak, you will see both of our books, Hans's uh, uh, Eat Like There's No Tomorrow, um, our our cocktail book, uh, The New Old Bar, and uh, Hans's Spices will be on there. We'll see what else we can get up on that for, for you to like uh, come and visit us. Uh, you can Hit us up at email, but I digest podcast at gmail.com on Instagram, but I digest podcast, Twitter and Facebook are both at but I digest pod. A couple quick thank yous go out for our website, uh, Hewitt Rabel, our editor, Natalie DeChico, our theme song, Brian Reyes, additional music by Corey Goodrich. And, and if you want to send me a primer of Broadway uh, shows that I should watch so that I'm not so ignorant on these things, <laughs> I am more than welcome for any tutelage that you might uh, be willing to offer me. No, no. Any, anybody who's like spent their years like watching Broadway shows, you just lost them with the word tutelage. Tutelage. That sounds like a, it sounds like a lyric to a Broadway song. Tutelage. <laughs> no, they'd have had to been paying attention in school rather than like playing their uh, their Broadway songs in their head. I did the D&D &D version of Broadway shows. You know, I'd roll a die. There's, a, there's an idea there. All right, Are we, so done, are we here? done here? I think we're, we're done. done here. This was a real nice clam bake. Mighty glad uh -huh. we came. I'm the captain now. <laughs>